again, joined by Mike McShane, except now there's one small difference. You are now in um, Ireland. I am. Permanently. I am. How's that? It's great. Um, it's it. uh, it's been moving with a uh, family and a two year old in the middle of a global pandemic uh, is not necessarily moving ac across an ocean during that. I don't know if I would necessarily do it again, but it seemed to work. So it's it's all good. Uh, just just so we have a sense, like how is Ireland doing pandemic wise? compared to the United States? Well, you know, it's been interesting because Ireland had one of the longest and strictest lockdowns kind of in the world. Um, like the pubs here, which as many people would be familiar are a integral part of Irish life, were closed for 15 months, 16 months. They, they sort of never really opened up. So restaurants did and others. Um, and then since I've been back here, uh, restaurants, pubs and everything reopened, but you have to have um, a COVID certificate to get in. So um, the, the EU made one and, and Ireland had one. So if you're vaccinated in Ireland, you have this little QR code that you have on your phone. And when you go into the pub or you go into a restaurant, they scan it ahead of time to make sure you're vaccinated. Now, this was a bit of a challenge for me because I was not vaccinated in Ireland. So I do not have one of these codes and i reached out to the hse which is like the health service executive here and said hey can i like get mine recognized or whatever and they were just like no it's that's not really a priority right now so we're going to deal with you later now luckily i got the great state of kansas where i got vaccinated to send me my records and i have them on my phone and everyone's been cool about it so every restaurant i've been in every pub i've been in um i show them that and that usually the reactions are actually pretty funny because i'm like well here's here's my vaccine records from the state of kansas and one guy say like that's a pretty complicated lie if you're lying to me. So I'm just going to assume that you're telling me the truth. So, right. so yeah, no. And what I think about the last, uh, schools? Are they open? Yeah, schools have been open. That's been one thing that's been really interesting. So Ireland, other than in like the absolute depth of the pandemic, which for them was kind of like last winter, schools mm -hmm. have been open the entire time. Um, they they kept schools open. They, this was, It was very much the sort of opinion over here was we'll close everything else down, but schools will be the last thing to close down. We'll close everything before we close yeah. schools. Said for that, um, I don't know if you know this being over there with the time change and all, but Missouri just released preliminary statewide only test scores um, for the last school year. And and the way it worked was that in order to be counted in these test scores, a, a child had to go to school and take it in person. So but then they tracked whether they were virtual students or there was two categories, virtual and distant. I don't know the difference, but they're both were all virtual or hybrid or in person. And um, as you can well imagine, the results are really dismal. I mean, across the board, really big drops, but really bad for the virtual students um, in the students who received their instruction all virtually in math, 55%, almost 56% scored below basic, which in Missouri Whoa. means um, <laughs> no mis no understanding of the material. And there's basic, wow. which is partial understanding of the material, and another 30% were, were basic, but um, like 80% either below basic or basic, which means basically it was a fail. It didn't work, right? So, well, um, and then, and so that's just the academic element of it too right so right. If we think of socialization community all of those things so and then there's 10 percent of kids who didn't take the test and we know that there's a three and a half percent or so who seem to be missing i mean we bunch of kids we lost we don't know exactly where they are but the kids who didn't make it in to take the test i'm guessing weren't high flyers right i don't think that but for that 
them the scores. Yeah, right. For sure. So, so uh, reading scores down, unfortunately, or English language arts, unfortunately for the younger kids, like third, fourth and fifth graders, they had the biggest drops in English language arts. And that is just such a critical, critical period in a kid's education where if they don't learn to read in third by third or fourth grade, then they're just, they're not gonna be able to read their science books or their math books or, or anything else. And that I think proficiency in third grade was like 36%. Math proficiency statewide is 35%. Everything just way down. And of course, you know, but finger pointing sort of, but a whole lot of like, let's not panic. These are fine. You can't compare them to other years. But the fact is, we know what happened. Right. Well, well, I mean, like, here's the thing that I think a lot of people in schools, it kind of befuddles me on these. We have folks saying, you know, kids weren't in school for like months at a time and everything's fine. That is no big deal. Kids won't suffer from it. And then you're just like, what? So what if they don't go? Why do they go to school if them not going to school is no big deal? It's a very, I, I found from the kind of educational establishment, it's such an odd tack to take, which is like, if kids aren't in school, it's no big deal. And it's like, well, then why are we sending you all of this money to educate them? Let's and have then, them do something you know, else. This year, we're really hitting the quarantine thing is, is the solution to the problem. We're going to be open in person, but the minute that somebody tests positive or somebody was around somebody who tests positive, then whole classrooms get quarantined. And um, now kids are back out of school. And I can well imagine, I've talked to some folks that, you know, your third grader just starts the school year finally, and they go and they meet their teacher and they get their desk and they get their cubby and all that stuff. Like, oh, you're gonna be home for 10 more days. You're gonna be like, I'm not gonna do school on the computer anymore. You right? know, just, they've had it. But one thing I really wanna talk to you about is we have uh, so many surveys going on because everyone <laughs> wants to know, how are the parents doing? How are the kids doing? How are the teachers doing? How's everybody doing? What are we thinking about this? What do we think about quarantines? Which one thing that uh, your organization EdChoice has done, which has been great, is monthly polls throughout this entire time, right? Yep. Monthly. And um, the last one had some kind of surprising things in it for me. Were you surprised by the latest round of survey data? Yes. I mean, one of the things that was different this month was normally, as you might imagine, so so just as background for everybody, we partner with Morning Consult, which is a you know, very reputable polling firm, and we pull a nationally representative sample of Americans every month, nationally representative sample of teachers every quarter. We also oversample parents to make sure that we have a nice big sample, representative sample of parents as well. So yeah, so as far as surprises, normally, as you might imagine, from polling month to month, you don't really see big changes in things. After a few months, you can start to see trends. But this was one of the first times where on, on at least one of the indicators, we saw a, a big abrupt change. Which was? Uh, comfort in going back to school. So um, we've been asking this question throughout the whole course of the pandemic. Um, based on what you've, I, I can pull up the question right here. Um, based on what you have seen, read, or heard about the coronavirus um, outbreak so far, how comfortable are you with your children returning to school right now? And um, this was a number that had been steadily, as you might imagine, with you know more no. vaccinations and all these things, it's a number that had been steadily ticking upward. People well, are getting comfortable. Yeah. People are getting comfortable. Well, um, in August, that changed. So it dropped from July to August, the total number of the percentage of respondents who were comfortable, which is like people who say they're very comfortable and somewhat comfortable, dropped 15 points. Wow. 
down to only 57% of parents saying that they were comfortable and the uncomfortable went up 11 points up to uh, 37%. So why do you, why do you think, what do you think is going on? Well, I mean, I think the Delta variant, right? Um, I think, you know, we're seeing stories all across uh, the country of, you know, hospitalizations going up. I think we're hearing much more about children being hospitalized. And again, it's, it's difficult because, you know, we're in, an environment that's changing so quickly. I think folks are still trying to figure out like, is the Delta variant worse for kids or is it just like right. more people are getting it? So it's not, it's just, it's as, as you know, sort of not as bad as, as we thought it was, but more people are getting it. And so as a result, that's, you know, more, we're seeing it affect more kids. So, yeah, I mean, I, I just think all of that coverage of all of that is probably what, what ratcheted that up. Well, you're a parent. What do you need to do? Because I know that we, we took a survey of Missouri parents in December and um, the percentage who said that they're very concerned that their child is behind went from 7% the year before to like 37%. I think parents get this. They know that their kids have lost a lot of time. Even if they haven't lost ground, they know they've lost time. And, you know, when you're a little kid, like this is very important. These 12 years are pretty important. And you take a, one or two of them off the table and all of a sudden parents parents are worried about it. And then I, I imagine they're also worried about sending their children to school. So what are, what's a parent to do? Yeah. I mean, do do? I think it, yeah. I think it's super tough right now. I tend to think I am still sort of in the camp that from what I know, and I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not an immunologist. So I'm just a guy talking here. I'm just going to put this. I'm just a guy talking here. It still seems to me from the data that the coronavirus is not as dangerous for kids as other common things that circulate, I used to be a teacher, you know, um, have, have a kid, you know, RSV, flu that circulate every winter um, seem to be a- about as dangerous or potentially more dangerous for kids than the coronavirus is. And we haven't had sort of wide scale mitigation efforts for either of those diseases um, in the past. Um, and so it's not clear to me, at least from the perspective of keeping children safe, why the coronavirus should necessarily be different. To me, the justification that always existed for why we were shutting schools down, why we were keeping kids at home, was not so much because kids were at risk, but because it was putting their teachers, their parents, their grandparents at risk. And I think we're in a difficult conversation right now in the sense that those teachers, those parents, those grandparents have had months and months to get vaccinated, right? Like. They have, by the time school started back up again, anybody in America who has wanted to get vaccinated against this, and I think the data is unambiguous in that case, that if you are vaccinated, the coronavirus poses little to no risk to you. So to me, there's really no justification in keeping kids. I mean, it was a difficult call last year, right? Trying to weigh this out of like protecting the health of older people, but denying kids the opportunity to go to school in person. To me, at least in that level, the calculus is way easier this year. Like we should not ask students to sacrifice that again for people now who've had the opportunity to be vaccinated, right? Like there's no, there's there's no moral calculus and that's okay. State after state is releasing test scores in the last week or so. This seems to be the time that they've gotten it together, going to release the state test scores. And it does seem that virtual education was harmful to kids educationally. So- But I'm not going to, I've never been one to tell a parent what they have to do with their kid. I prefer that let parents have a couple of options available so that if the one that they, 
like they don't have just one that doesn't work. But is it true that support for school choice policies also declined slightly in those survey? So not in our surveys. So okay. this has been this has been an interesting thing. So a, a few different surveys have come out in the last like month. So you right. had Education Next had their um, annual poll that comes out. We do an annual poll in addition to our monthly polling, the Schooling in America survey right. survey that we've done since um, 2013. Phi Delta Kappen came out with their poll, and I will say so in both Education Next and in our Schooling in America survey we did see slight declines in the support for school choice programs. Now, it's a little bit deceptive because the last iteration of our survey in 2020 had the highest scores for them ever. And so okay. taken since 2013, these numbers would be the second highest ever. So there's slightly, I want to say education savings account went from something like 81% in favor to like 78% right. in favor. So That's what I saw. We saw declines, but they were small. It seems to me that most um, school choice of the, the levels are still very, very high and higher than they've been in, in most of the polling that we've done on them. So where do you think parents are right now? I mean, you've looked at all these data. Where do you think, what do you think parents want out of this school year? Do you think they want to have schools open every day and have their kids get on the bus and go and pretend it's normal? or you know, make it seem as normal as possible? Or do you think they really do wanna have a couple of choices available so that when their school, when their child you know, can't go because of quarantine or whatever other reason, they have a plan B that they can use? I, I think you're frozen again. No, I, I, I'm not for, I don't, okay. I'm for, I heard you. Uh, I, my answer to your question is yes, <laughs> in the <laughs> sense that one of the things that I think we're finding in our polling is that parents just think their different parents think different things. Now, I will say we've asked a question in our monthly polling about whether you would want multiple options or just one option um, as opposed like in where your kids are going to school. And overwhelmingly between two thirds and three quarters of folks have said that they want multiple options. So I feel pretty good on the idea of whether it's a school district or whatever, they should be offering multiple options saying, here's an online option. If you're more comfortable for that, with that, here's that. But I think what we're seeing across, and this cuts across lots of issues that we're polling on. So, so for example, we're mask mandates or vaccine mandates or any of those things. I think our most recent polling for that shows like 50, 50 splits on that. Like That's right. 50% are for the mandates 50. Now, to be fair, it's not necessarily 50% or against the mandates. There's like 20 or 30% that are in like recommended, but not mandated. Um, so when I look at those numbers, I just see lots of splits in these situations. So, so frankly, like I don't envy if you're running a school district, right? Oh now, my gosh. Right. Like you just, that, that's the thing. And the, the problem is when folks say the American education system is so huge that if you say like, if, if our numbers are right, and there's uh, just using the example mask mandates, there is a 50-50 split. Right. If you're pro mask mandate, you have 25 million kids on your, you know, like the families of 25 million kids on your side. And if you're against them, you have the family of 25 million kids That's on your side. Right. So it's very easy for you to see, oh my God, I'm the, you know, I am representative of this massive group of people, but it's hard to see that there is an equally massive group of people on the other side. Um. That's right. Uh. And I, you know, I keep asking, getting asked this question: Is this a watershed moment? Is this a watershed moment for school choice? And I do think that parents have stronger opinions now on both sides. 
And I do think that parents, um, well, you know, I anecdotally, I know parents are like, I can't with the quarantining and all of it. I'm just going to homeschool, you know, just like, never mind. I'm just going to do this myself. I do think there's a lot of that going on. Um, but I think this past year could be an inflection point for moving towards a more, you know, pluralistic set of, you know, portfolio of schools in the United States, like the UK has. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think that, um, that parents are frustrated um, and that, but it is still interesting, right? In the polling that we do, and I think in the same polling that Education Next and others do, there's that classic like Congress question, right? What, what do you think about yeah. the you know right track, wrong track? Right. People overwhelmingly will, will rate their own schools higher than they will the nation's schools. So you have lots of people complaining about where they think their state is going or where the federal, you know, the national education system is going, but they tend to look a little more favorably at their local schools. Now, I will say, in our kind of right track, wrong track polling, we do see a divergence between the general population and parents. Mm-hmm. No, th- at least in this iteration, parents were more negative about the direction of the school system than the general public is. And I'd have to go back and check our numbers, but memory seems to serve me that generally it's the other way around. Generally, That's parents right. parents tend to be more positive about schools than the general public. But in this case, we actually don't see that. We see the opposite. So The question for me, I think, in coming up with all of this is what happens with that frustration? How is that frustration channeled? Um, And one of the examples that I'll give from, uh, I may be dating myself with this example, but, um, and I may, someone maybe when they listen to this, they'll get a shudder, but if everyone remembers the common core, right? So this was (laughs) five, five or seven years ago. Or gosh, what is it? Maybe 10 years ago now? I don't even know when it hit its zenith. Um, But yeah, so the common right. core was this years whole, ago. yeah, this common core was this huge deal. It became, I mean, still is like a punchline of jokes, but it, it yeah. became this whole thing. Parents were fired up about it. You know, the everything went viral with the math homework that was ridiculous and and whatever. And and I think a lot of people thought, oh my goodness, like this is this moment of mass parental dissatisfaction. But that never really got channeled, right? Like people got upset about stuff, but to what end? Um, a lot of folks got rid of, quote unquote, got rid of the Common Core, even though in, in many places they didn't even actually get rid of it. They just like put a new name on it and people moved on to their next thing. Exactly. And so that's my big question trying to understand like what's happening right now is the degree to which this is going to go somewhere. I think we're in a time of just lots of dissatisfaction, like People are not happy about the way the world is going and being cooped up in their homes for like 18 months mm-hmm. is gonna gonna do that to you. But the question is, is that gonna be productively channeled? And so I hope that um, you know, and, and this stuff that we do at EdChoice and, and I think the Show Me Institute and, and other institutions are doing this of like trying to show people what folks are doing. Hey, look at this new cool school model that's out there. Look at this school district that's innovating. Look at this private school that's doing something. If you're frustrated, this is the type of place where you could go, or here's how public policy could change to enable these things to happen. But that's happening episodically and sort of in, in, in fits and starts in places. So that's that's my big question trying to interpret this is, will something sort of positive be channeled out of this? Or is this really just stuff that people are frustrated or they can get people to say no, but they can't actually do something different? Yeah, I mean, people probably don't realize that micro schools existed before the pandemic. Um, Learning pods existed. Schools based on individualized learning plans already existed. Um, But during the pandemic, they kind of bubbled up to the surface like that company Prenda. 
they were ready to go to start opening a bunch of right? micro schools. But um, those things were already happening, but happening very much at the margins. And what I think is interesting about the parent, um, you know, opinions out of this is that it it covers the whole socioeconomic um, stratum, right? So it has generally been the case that school choice was a very popular idea with people who had none, people who couldn't move, people whose kids were stuck going to schools with no bathroom doors and leaky roofs, like people really had some of the worst of the worst. Of course, they wanted school choice. And of course, when charter schools open in Kansas City and St. Louis, parents flock to them because they really want anything other than their one and only choice. And, and they were stuck. But parents who could move around or parents who, you know, loved their schools or sent their kids to schools, they went like that whole thing. They didn't really see the need for school choice. And what I think is very interesting is like a lot of this has hit home. I know parents in Ladue, which is one of the wealthiest um, areas of St. Louis, who were irate that the school was virtual based on the house that they bought to live in that district. Right? So you have parents across all income groups who are kind of equally hit. And I just, I've said this before, but I hope one takeaway is remembering what that feels like when you get up in the morning, you're like, ah, my kids can't go anywhere and I want them to, and I have the money and why can't I make this happen? Um, so I, I, I kind of hope that's true. And then people talk about how parents got a, like a front row seat to their child's education. I don't think that's going to have as big, my just opinion is that's going to have as big of an impact I think a lot of parents looked at the math homework and was like, what happened to long division? But they're not <laughs> losing sleep over it. You know what yeah. I mean? They're like, okay, apparently there's no more long division. Apparently we don't parse sentences, but or diagram sentences. But, you know, I don't think they're going to really get too terribly engaged on that if their kids are still doing well. But I do think that um, these groups that normally have had all the choices they wanted, having no choices, might impact it more long term. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think people are seeing like school boards, right? Like yeah. the, the governmental institution that's attached with this. And people are like, what's going on with these things? Like, that's right. yeah. Remember how you didn't vote for any of these people because that's the election right. was held on like a random Tuesday in April. And remember how, yeah, like now you actually show up to their meetings and you're shocked that they don't know what they're doing or this is dysfunctional. And it's like, yeah, man, school boards are not in so many places, like they are not strong institutions. They are uh -huh. not co competent or capable people. Um, and they tend to get, they often get elected for really weird reasons in these super low turnout elections and others. So, I mean, look, one, one thing that could come out of this is like, we could move school board elections on cycle. Anybody want to do that? Like where we actually have some idea of who's running for the school board and an actual representative sample mm -hmm. of a community votes for those people. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I continue to see in Kansas City, which I know better because I don't know how the recent elections in St. Louis have been. I mean, the school board members that are elected because no one runs, you That's know, right. one person, you know, I think sitting on the school board in Kansas City right now are multiple people who just were the only people to get the requisite number of signatures, which is like 300 or something. It's like a very yeah. small number of people, but they ran unopposed. I think at least one person, even though they may have cycled off, literally no one got the requisite signatures. And so it was an all write-in um, election. I think there's really only been a small number in the past. I mean, I'm talking decade, a small number of actual competitive um, school board elections that are there. And so, yeah, then we're shocked when these folks can get bullied by the teachers unions or when mm -hmm. 
they don't seem to like know what's going on in the schools or any of those sorts of, you know, you ask them basic questions about like what's happening in schools and they can't answer it. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, because they got elected by 200 people. That's yeah. right. That's right. And they've been picking your curriculum for a long time. Right. You just weren't paying any attention to totally. it. Totally. And doing everything, setting your teacher's pay scales Absolutely. and um, schedules and calendars and technology purchases and all these. I mean, like a lot of these school districts in Missouri have humongous budgets and yep. hundreds, if not thousands of people that work for them. And ultimately, like the the people who oversee that, who are in charge of that, are democratically elected folks. Um totally. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so and they and they hold that up like, but we are we're democratically elected. I'm like, kind of not exactly. Yeah. I do think that that I agree with you on that one. And, you know, the latest round of fed, federal stimulus funding, the American Rescue Plan requires meaningful consultation with community stakeholders and how the money gets spent. And it's not I don't have any hope that that's going to actually happen. But theoretically, it's supposed to happen like participatory budgeting. I don't think that's going to happen. But I you know, one thing that I'm really want to start pressing for from the Missouri legislature is that every every student in Missouri should have two choices plus virtual, not just, you know, when you say we need two choices, like, well, they can go to virtual or they yeah. can come to the classroom. Um, two choices plus virtual. And I think we have an opportunity now with the whole mass quarantining mess uh, of saying, well, then you can go to the district next door. Sure. If they have a mask mandate and you don't have a mask mandate or vice versa, whichever group you're in. If you want a mask mandate school, you can go to that one. If you want a non-mask mandate school, you can go to that one. And I know that would create a lot of chaos because teachers have their school, their you know student lists and all of that. But if we really believe this, that you shouldn't be forced to go to a school with a mask mandate if you don't want your child wearing a mask, then we've got to let them go somewhere else, right? Yes, I agree with you. I will make one addendum to that, and Please. that is choice within the online system as well, because I would hate oh, to see yeah. a school district, Absolutely. right? Which I knew you were going to agree with, but yeah. yes, because um, it seems to me like some of the things that schools and districts have done on the online side has been horrible. I mean, obviously we're horrible. seeing this in the data that's horrible. And like, there are people who have experience doing this. There are folks that are out there that can do it. So like not every one of Missouri's 518 school districts need to reinvent the wheel on this. So, I I mean, I would hope, and again, there's like no shortage of money for this now. I mean, that's so much money. We could have every kid enrolled in like multiple online providers, like soup to nuts providers, even if they never use it. And there was plenty of federal money in order for them to do that. So there's just no, there's just no excuse at this point. And I have to, I don't know if you're sort of seeing the same thing, but just like, I'm just like so immensely frustrated as I look at all these schools coming back and they've had three rounds of huge infusions of federal cash and they have no excuses right now. No excuses for anything. Right. We, we don't have X. We can't do Y. That's crazy. You have been given 10 times the amount of money you need to be able to do any of this stuff. And, um, and yet it's not happening. You know, we're still seeing places where, I mean, even around these like quarantining procedures and others, like they're flying by the seat of their pants. It's, this is the third school year. This is a, we're in school year three in which we've been coping with this virus. And there are places that don't seem to have like policies and procedures in place to deal with this sort of stuff. And it's just inexcusable at this point. That's exactly right. And I think we've talked about this before, but at the end of the 1920 school year, okay, we shut down in April. 
pretty much spring break. Kids were going to come back and take the test. I think they should have taken the test that year. And I bet sure. you in hindsight, I bet they wish they had taken the test that year. Yeah, you know for what sure. I mean? Because they were 90% of the way through the school year. You take the test. After that, it's what field day and, you know, years over. So it wasn't that bad. It was pretty darn late in the school year. And I think a lot of folks thought that the moment that happened and school year was over, all the teachers and staff were just working their, you know, brains out trying to come up with a great system for August. They were not because their contracts don't work that way. Yep. Contracts work that like your next in service day is going to be August 5th. And you're not going to get paid to work over the summer. So I doubt you're working on your virtual programming over the summer. So yeah, but you're right. And they had all last year and then they had teachers who wanted to be virtual and teachers who don't want to be virtual. And they didn't really sort that out. And then in Missouri, the regulation was waived for hybrid, like a couple of days in and a few days out and they let that expire. So now with these quarantining classrooms, I don't know what they're doing because you're not allowed to do a mix of virtual and in person. You have to do fully one or the other. And it's really a mess. And um, I think we should be treating it like a Sputnik moment, but I don't see that sense of urgency from within public education. Yeah, maybe no, I'm missing it. I could, I mean, maybe. I I'm- will say, I think this school year is going to be very interesting because I think even under the most optimistic scenarios of school districts that, you know, um, are able to operate in person. They don't have quarantining, you know, they're basically spared another round of the coronavirus, right? You are still going to have just massive issues to cope with over the course of the, because of of the last year and a half, right? So you're going to have kids who had all sorts of out of school experiences where some kids are way ahead because they were in super enriching environments and they spent this last summer going to museums or whatever. Um, And then you'll have kids that are super far behind. And and I feel for the teachers that, you know, you're going to have 20 kids in class that have had vastly different years, but it's hard enough when all of your kids were all together the year before, like all of your fourth graders were all in third grade together and you still are trying to differentiate. You're still trying to meet the needs of all the kids that are in that classroom. Now scramble that like times a thousand of the spread that's there. And so what I think is parents are also going to see their kids are going to come home and some kids are going to say, Hey, we, we like did this last year. I already know how to do all the stuff we're doing in class. This is super frustrating. And that's going to frustrate parents. Then you're going to have kids that are so far behind that are like, I don't even know what's going on here. And that's going to really frustrate people. And then you're going to have the, the classic, unfortunately, like the most forgotten kids in, in American education, these ones that are just kind of in the middle. Right. And they don't draw on the teacher's attention or the school's attention because they're not floundering and they're not flourishing. So they're just kind of there. Yeah. And, and so I think throughout the course of this year, parents are going to start to have their kids come home and they're like, what are these schools doing? Like what is going on? And, and again, that I think you and I are sort of on the same page of this, of like, it should be a Sputnik moment. It should change people's minds. It should get people saying like, Whoa, there's like rot at the core of some of these institutions and they are not fit for purpose. Like they are not doing the job that we want them to do, that we pay them to do, that we vote for them to do. And we got to try something different, but it's tough. You know, I mean, we had bus drivers driving empty buses because they needed to get paid to drive buses, but there weren't any kids on the bus. I mean, we had that kind of stuff going on where it's like, could we think about this more creatively? Could we use this as an innovation moment? I bet we could, but we shouldn't be doing that. I don't know what we should be doing, but I, you know, I don't know. I hope that the money 
is spent wisely, but I'm very concerned. I guess I'll just leave it at that. I'm well, concerned look, we, that, you know, five years from now, we're gonna be like, wow, that was billions of dollars. Don't know where it is. See, this is what I, so I agree with you, okay. but I also NFL think NFL player with a signing bonus. They're like, yes, I'm happy to put a marker down now. And I can't remember, I was going to put this in a show me Institute blog, but I might've cut it out. Maybe it's in there. So my marker may already be placed down, but if not, I will do it here on this podcast. We are going to hear in five years time about the massive cuts to education, yeah. right? <laughs> because yeah. all these federal dollars that are supposed to be one time tied to the pandemic are going to run out. And so they had this massive infusion of cash. And I will bet any number of school districts are going to just sort of put that in their baseline of spending. So rather than saying we spend X and now we've got this little extra for, for a couple of years to do stuff that's time limited and whatever. No, they're going to hire new no, staff. They're going to hire people. I'm hearing they're that gonna, school districts. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And they're going to build, build. And then suddenly five years from now, we're going to hear about these massive cuts because they're not going to have this extra spending that's there. I mean, it's like the oldest trick in the book. Yeah, and then, Rand has a survey of superintendents, and it's what what they're anticipating in the next few years. And like 2023, they're all anticipating a fiscal cliff. Right. Because like, they, uh-huh. they see it coming. It's like, if you know the fiscal cliff of no more extra money is coming, like, let's treat it like extra money and not, well, that happened with the last round of stimulus too. Of course. Like, in the, in the Great Recession, same thing happened. Massive federal infusion. And then people were like, we, our budgets are cut. It's like, well, maybe you shouldn't have gone with that one-to-one Chromebook plan. Then you, you know now I mean? have if, to keep up and buy new Chromebooks. You couldn't keep it going. Yeah. I don't yeah, I mean, know, but I, I think that maybe I'd be curious to know if you see this in the um, survey data. What I hear is that parents really want yes. tutoring. They want like triage. They want like one-on-one attention now on the things my child doesn't know. And I want it now. I, they don't like, if you're going to hire people, you're going to hire more people. They've got to get on board. They, you know, it takes a couple of years before they're very good. They want stuff right now. Yes. We found, we've been doing it. I'm trying to pull up the numbers and I don't know if I see them. We may have stopped asking them as the school year started, but yes, we've been asking a tutoring question and it was a huge percentage of Family saying either they had already hired a tutor or they will be hiring tutors in the future. And look, here's the thing. I think that the evidence that we have on tutoring is actually pretty good. It's really compared good. To, yeah. Compared to most educational interventions that we have, which is not the highest bar, but like the, the, the uh, evidence on tutoring is pretty good. And the frustrating thing is like, this is like the exact type of thing that this federal money should be spent on, That's right. which is like kids are behind. We need to hire tutors for two or three years to get kids back or a year, whatever, to get kids back where they need to be. And then that's done. Um, that Florida's not- been doing this with the, the reading thing. So third and fourth and fifth graders who are not reading at grade level, they just get $500 to spend on tutoring over the summer. You know what I mean? They yeah. parents get it directly to go find Great. tutoring and it's, there, we have the technology. We're pretty smart now on how to make sure they only spend it on tutoring and, and parents love it. You know, they want their kids to get that tutoring over the summer so they can start the next year where they should be. And yes. that's the kind of stuff we college kids, college kids in the summertime working, tutoring kids. Okay. Get the money. They have a job. The kids learn. Everything's yeah. good. Right. Everybody wins. Yeah, I can't remember the name. And I probably shouldn't say this in a podcast because I can't remember this very well-known person's name. But his solution is English grandmothers for everybody. <laughs> everybody gets an English grandmother. And you read, you know, they help you learn to read and everything else. And it could even be virtual because they'll just gonna say, Oh my gosh, you're doing such a great job. 
that's a solution as English grandmothers for everybody. Um, well, thank you. It was so great to talk to you from afar. Really appreciate it. We want you to keep checking in with show me Institute. What's of happening course. in Missouri. Yes. You'll still see me on the, uh, on the show me Institute blog from time to time. Um, and always, always a pleasure to chat with you and happy to join you whenever. Great. Well, thanks so much. Mm-hmm.